Jewish women are the strongest force on earth. We take care of our families, our communities, and carry the sacred responsibility of ensuring that our traditions are carried on to the next generation. This is A Deeper Conversation, a podcast for Jewish women. We explore ways to strengthen ourselves and our connection with God and the Torah. My name is Yocheved Davidowitz. I am a wife, a mother, a teacher, a writer, a therapist, and most importantly, a Jewish woman. Welcome. Hey, everybody, this is Yochaved. Thank you so much for joining me. You're going to love this conversation that I had with my mother and my daughter, three generations of Jewish women. We talked about how things have stayed the same, how things have changed. And the funniest thing happened as we were getting this episode set up, which totally encapsulated the whole thing. We had zoomed, we had sent a Zoom link to my mom. My daughter was in studio with me and she was really struggling trying to get on. It wasn't working, it wasn't going. And I'm like, Ma, okay, let me just look at my phone and see what you're doing wrong. And my daughter next to me says, Bobby, just press the button on the right left hand of your screen or whatever instruction she just rattled off. And it was just the most, you know, classic moment where my mother feels very uncomfortable with technology. I am not uncomfortable, but I'm not exactly fluent. And I still have to kind of work through whatever the technology thing is. My daughter, of course, is a native and it was just so easy and she knew exactly what to do. And you just sort of saw in that moment, like how things have changed so much and the differences like in the generations. But my mom and my daughter are wonderful women. I'm sandwiched between two women who are smarter than myself. My mom, Mrs. Torsky Gans, you may remember her from episode 12. You could go back and listen to that. It was an incredible episode. She is a a therapist. She is a supervisor. She supervises other therapists as well, marriage and family therapists. Um, and she is obviously not just an incredibly wonderful Jewish woman, but a very talented professional as well. My younger daughter, Yael, to give you a sense of where she is in her life, she and her husband just left Kola and um, are embarking on a new life now. My son-in-law is a Rebbe and a Masifta, and my daughter is a school psychologist, my daughter Yael, and um, a young mother. And we had such a good time talking about some of the challenges and the struggles and the things that we deal with and how things, like I said, have stayed the same and have not. And in fact, I need to do part two or even part three of this because there were so many things we didn't get to talk about that I really want to. And if you have any things that you would like to hear us talk about, please be in touch with me. Email me at a deeper conversation 120 at gmail.com. That is where you email me also for questions and feedback. If you'd like to sponsor an episode, email me at a deeper conversation, 120 at gmail.com. You can follow me on Instagram at a deeper conversation and consider sponsoring the podcast. If this is something you listen to regularly, you get value from it and you want to help keep it going, go to maverickpodcasting.com, click on the link to my page. You'll see the little heart sign there with the money symbol. Scroll down to my name and click on it and you can help to sponsor or donate. Um, to the podcast. Anyways, enjoy the episode. I hope you enjoy the, listening to this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. Okay, mom and Yael, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. All right, this is a conversation I've been wanting to have for a long time. My audience might remember my mother. The very first interview that I did with a, another person was with my mother. And um, at the time, I thought this would be really cool. We could talk about how things have changed, how things have stayed the same. And one of the first things that I'm going to talk about is actually I want to start where I thought I'd end up with, which is with raising kids. And it occurred to me, Mom, you grew up in the 50s and 60s, right? Yeah. Okay, so you grew up in the 50s and 60s. I grew up in the 80s and 90s. Yeah, you grew up in the 
2000s? 2000s. Um, and I guess what I'm wondering is, as a little kid, what was technology like? What was your exposure to technology? What were some of the concerns that your parents had with regards to your exposure to technology? Mom, you start. Well, it's really almost a non-question for me because there was no technology other than radio and a telephone. There was no call waiting. There was no, it was the big excitement in our house because my father was a rabbi and he got a lot of calls. The silos just have two lines and you could transfer between the two lines. That was the extent of technology. We had no exposure to it. We played all day. We were outside all the time. We used our imaginations and made up all kinds of games and roller skated and rode bikes and did arts and crafts. We didn't sit. We weren't inside. We, you know, other than we were in school, what we a- just, it, it just was a non-issue. Until I was, I remember the first person on the block got a television when I was in elementary school. And once in a while, we would go over to his house and watch, like, Leave it to Beaver. Once in a while, it was a big deal. Mm-hmm. Like, and other people got televisions, but because my father was a rabbi, we did not have a television in our house until the Six-Day War. Wow. My father got a little portable television for the six-day war so that we could watch it. So I had no exposure to technology whatsoever. So, okay, I could do the math. The six-day war is in 1967. So you were 16 at the time? Right. Um, Right. Did you go to the movies? Like, was that a thing that from people did? Because I imagine the content was not what it would be now. Yes. Well, I don't know what from people in New York did. I grew up in Denver, Colorado. So in Denver, everybody went to the movies. We went once in a while on Sunday. The, you know, we watched Disney movies mostly. It was very interesting because it was like a way for us to be entertained on a cold day. My mother would drop me and my brother and my little sister off at 1130. It was perfectly safe. There were never safety issues. You could run around free. You could go to parks. You could drop three kids who were like eight. Oh, well, my sister was younger, seven, you know, 10 and 12 at a movie theater. We watched it a few times. My mother would come back at five. Like, wow. that was our cold weather activity once in a while. That was it. Uh-huh. Okay, so when I grew up, obviously it was a lot different in the 80s, 90s. We didn't really have a TV in the house too often, but, like, we would get it for something, and then it would stick around for a little while. Like, we used to bring it in, I remember, for the Olympics. We would have a TV and, we'll, like, watch the Olympics, and then sometimes it would stick around for, like, a few months post the Olympics, then get rid of it. I actually very vividly remember when VCRs came out, and I couldn't imagine, like, you could watch a movie in your house. Like, that is so cool that you could do that. Because, of course, we also went to the movie. Like, I remember you picking me up from Basiakov and taking me to the movies. Like, in Basiakov in, in Queens, we went to go see the Disney Sleeping Beauty version of it. I was so excited. And even when I was growing up um, in Basiakov of Queens, everybody had a TV. We had a black and white television. We would come home and I would come home and watch Wonder Woman. But like you'd go to school the next day and everybody was talking about, you know, whatever movie was on television the night before, or we used to watch the Muppet show. Like everybody in the class had watched the Muppet show on Monday nights at seven 30. And the next day in school, like we had all seen it. Everybody had a television. It wasn't like a thing so much that, you know, people don't have. And I guess as I got older, that's sort of when we got rid of it, like around fourth, fifth grade, we had that big mod. Do you remember that big black and white television? Yeah. And then I guess, what was it? Was it that things that the content was getting a little bit more questionable? Like what happened that we decided like when that TV broke that we weren't going to get another one? Yeah. So the 
content was getting a little more questionable. There was a little more violence. And we felt the kids were just sitting and not reading and not using their imaginations and not playing. Like, they, you know, like that was what they would rather do. And then there was like some of this, like, you know, fetching, I want to watch. I don't, you know, like, we just didn't want to have that hassle. Right. And, and I remember distinctly saying to daddy, after we got rid of the TV, look how much more the kids are reading and playing with each other. I distinctly remember that. And I actually remember something that maybe I could ask you about. And my, my daughter, Yael, is sitting here very patiently. I'm going to get to you in a second, Yael. But I remember you saying something that your father had said about television, which was that, and I'm sure he wouldn't say this nowadays, but um, that the worst thing about TV was the commercials. Yes. Yes, he felt that in those days when the shows were really kosher, I mean, the Donna Reed, I mean, when your days, it wasn't the Donna Reed show anymore. It was a little bit more, you know. Facts of life. I don't even remember what was on TV. Yeah, we right. used to watch but Family Ties. That the shows were not, you know, so problematic, but creating this insatiable need to buy things was very, very, you know, not healthy. All right. And that's certainly increased exponentially. Um, okay, so yeah, what was your childhood like with regards to technology? Like, what were some of the things that you felt like your parents were struggling with? So I think I grew up also a little bit not in the like typical Beisakov environment because we, I grew up in Vancouver in Canada. Right. So before third grade, I don't really remember much mm-hmm. um, about technology. I don't remember being a factor in my life. I remember you telling me a story that I obviously had watched the Olympics with you at some point because you mm-hmm. told me that I wanted to be like one of those girls up in the air. <laughs> right. um, but I don't really remember before that. And then in Vancouver, I think it was a very, um, like a lot of my memories about my childhood have to do with technology. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, I was only from girl with a whole bunch of non from friends. I didn't really have anybody that was my age that was from a similar background. And I think because of that, like it wouldn't have worked for me for the family we were at to be like as limited in our technology use as you you probably would have wanted us to be. Right. So, I mean, there was everything. There wasn't really the iPhone Mm -hmm. actually until like high school. I sort of missed that. Um, Like right when I went to seminary was when like everybody got an iPhone. So I kind of like missed the like Instagram like phase. And I came back from seminary. I remember being like, Oh my goodness, the world changed. Right. Like that was like that two years, like one year. Right. Um, well actually I remember, well, two things. First of all, I remember, I'm going to share a funny story (laughs) of us watching the Olympics when you were little and Tati came home and you were describing the Olympics the the I guess we're watching ice, ice dance, skating and you're like and then her tati picked her up in the air <laughs> <laughs> um right. but yes yeah, so we got you guys you and Tavora that's my younger daughter we got them um cell phones when they started high school I very much remember flip, that like razor flip, flip I was the coolest right. kid it was red and black yes and then we got you guys iPhones but at the time they weren't really connected to social media it was really more like it was like a phone and an iPod so you I had got your an music iPhone on it. before seminary yes but right. it, it wasn't like there was apps and there wasn't social media and there wasn't Facebook and there wasn't Instagram. There wasn't all that stuff. Okay. So like I wouldn't, you, you did, you kind of like miss that whole, there was no social media, right. but I do remember talking to you in high school and you had a fight with a friend and I said, why don't you just call her? And you were like, "Ma, that's really awkward. Nobody calls. We text. Yeah. I remember when I wanted to get Facebook uh-huh. and I had told you and you hadn't, I, I had wanted to ask Tati myself because I knew that Tati would give me a harder time about getting Facebook because mm-hmm. after I left camp, all my friends were like keeping in touch on Facebook. So I remember I walked into the kitchen and Tati and I was like preparing myself to like pitch the 
you know, yeah. they ask to Tati and he's like, you don't need to say anything. I can read your face like a book. <laughs> <laughs> and the answer is no. No, the was answer it? was yes, actually. Yeah. Shockingly. He I still don't know why you let me do that. Okay. Yeah. But you never really used it. Like you, you had it a little bit and then you, I guess you came back from right. seminar and at that point you made your own decision about right, right. whatever it was. Right. But, um, but mom, let me throw this back to you as the wiser, older person looking at my generation, Yal's generation. What do you think about what you see nowadays, even skipping over the 80s and 90s where there was still a little bit of like control over how much, in, you know, technology led into your house? Like, what do you see that is going on with kids nowadays? Well, I don't know about wise and certainly older and seeing, you know, this dramatic shift that technology has, has created. And, you know, there's nobody can argue that there are tremendously good things that have come out of it. But as a therapist who works with families, especially, and watching the struggle that even my children and friends' children are having with their children and technology, I almost see it as almost a negative. I mean, so my couples come in, they fight on tech. They, you know, they, it, they, one of the major complaints is my spouse is on her phone or his phone all the time. Parents are always struggling with trying to limit technology time with their children. Like it's a constant struggle. What are you exposing your children to? How much time? And then forget the social media and the influencers and, and, and how it's, become such a everything private has become public i don't do instagram i don't do facebook i've never had it on my phone i've seen it on other people's phone when clients have showed it to me but to me it's like it's antithetical to our whole concept of matovo lechiyako that people are always posting their private lives on public venues and it creates so much animosity and jealousy and wannabes and and mis and misrepresentation, because nobody's like, you know, that, that I have a sign in my office that we're comparing our, um, you know, our background rule to everybody's, you know, Highlight I don't real. know how it goes exactly, but what yeah. they're posting, and it doesn't match, and it doesn't match their lives either. You know, whatever they're posting, it's not really matching their lives, it's what they want to present. And the research has shown, not even Jewish, but secular research, that social media has created much more anxiety, jealousy, insecurity, um, depression, suicides. Like, I almost don't see what social media has done to enhance our lives. Right. Well, I would agree with that about social media, though. I have to say I really appreciate texting. Like, I appreciate being able to text my husband, you know, please pick this up from the store on the way home without it having to be a phone call. That's like the thing about right. Is there Is there anything that you appreciate about I technology? remember you telling me that when you were in Kola, yeah. The way that you made friends were the people that you carpooled with. Yes. And like that's how you developed relationships. But you're saying now with Lily, who's my youngest sister, who's nine years old now, right. that doesn't happen because no. you just text each other like, I'm outside, I'm outside. Okay, I can't come today. Can you come later? And there's no like forum for developing a relationship. Yes, that's very true. Although I still like texting. Right. No, I, I don't think I could do it without texting. My husband actually had a flip phone for a little bit. Um, he had like an old BlackBerry that he was able to keep for a long time until it switched to f like 5G or whatever it was. And then it right. wasn't working anymore. So he's been trying to find like a good flip phone since then. So for a while, he went back to like T9. Oh, my gosh. And I was like, listen, we have to make a code. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> one means I'm running late. Two means how are you? Because like he just stopped texting me. Right. And it was very inconvenient. Yeah. It's yeah. also hard, I think, if you're a person who doesn't want to have technology, like those people who, let's say, they don't have WhatsApp, but you kind of rely on WhatsApp, like, let's say, for your carpool or for your school oh. chat. Like, that's a very hard challenge, I think, for people who really see, like, what Bobby was my mom. 
I, if I'm going to refer to you into this podcast as Bobby when I'm talking to Yael, mom, when I'm talking to you, ma. But, um, you know, for people who are trying to limit their own technology and then they sort of have to be matriarch other people sometimes. I've always wondered about that because I, I got rid of my browser. Shameless mm-hmm. plug for Safe Telecom. It's, wonderful. <laughs> it's a wonderful phone. So it has like all the apps that I need and it has texting and it has no browser. So I always feel like I have to think five times before I call someone and say like, can you Google this for me? Can you look it up for me? Like I feel like when you are limiting your own technology, it has to be with like the added intention to like swallow the inconveniences that you're putting on yourself because right. it's like not really fair to do it on other people's husband. Right. Exactly. Okay. So, I mean, we could spend the whole podcast talking about technology, but there are, you know, kind of with the idea of this podcast was to talk about how things have changed and also how things have stayed the same. So maybe I'll move away from technology and talk just maybe a little bit about, I'd love to ask advice about how to raise my kids with technology, <laughs> um, <laughs> like older and wiser generations. Right. Um, we're going to talk about, um, let's talk about high school. Mom, what was high school like for you? You went to Beis Yaakov High School. No, I, I did. I actually went to Yamna. There was no Beis Yaakov in Denver when I was growing up. So for high school, I went to Yamna in Cleveland. I boarded. Mm-hmm. It was a pretty small school. There were 14 girls in my class. Um, over half of them were daughters of Rosh Hashiva from Tel. There was a Deathler, there was a Dreskin, there was a Stein, there was a... So it was... Um, you know, very, um, uh, I'm trying to describe how it was. Um, like, we were able to, like, in those days, even though it was a pretty issue school, we still read, we did Shakespeare, we did classics, which I don't know if they do in high school anymore. Um, did you feel we like there was censorship? Did you feel like there was censorship, like from a from kind of perspective at all? No, nothing was censored. I mean, you know, they chose the literature that we read, and when they did their curriculum, but nothing was censored. Everybody read. Very few girls in the class had TVs because it was, you know, more yeshivish class. Maybe other classes had TVs, so we weren't. We didn't have too much um, technology. And, um, and then where did the girls go afterwards? Like, was it already a thing, like, when girls graduated that they went to Israel? Like, what? where did your class go? Well, I graduated in 68. So after the 67 wars were really when people started going to Israel. There weren't that many seminaries then. I think if I remember correctly, there was Mahon Gold and maybe BJJ started. I don't know. I think only one or two girls went to Israel for my class of 14. Um, many girls stayed in Yavna because Yavna had a very good seminary. So I think most of the girls stayed there and went to seminary. I went back home to Denver because I'd been away from home for high school. I really wanted to be home. And I went to the University of Denver. And I remember my father saying to me at the time when people were saying, well, why don't you just send your daughter to New York, maybe to Stern? And my father said, I'd much rather her be home and in a completely great environment where she knows clearly there are lines between them and her. No confusion about you know, like different, different different gradations of Yiddish type. And whenever she has any shilas about what she learns or what she hears, she'll come home and ask me about them. And we can discuss them. And I did learn with my father then. We started learning different things. And he always said, here I'm going. So I did quite a bit of learning because my house was a house of learning and classes. And was, my father was a community rabbi. And I went to the University of Denver and had a regular secular college experience. So I think that was atypical. Mm-hmm. Um, did you have I any from friends in of, Cleveland? Like, did you have any Cleveland in Denver? Did you have anybody your age when you were in college? Yes. I 
actually had two girls who were in my elementary school class who both went away to Chicago for high school. They both came back to college at the same time I did. They went to different colleges than I did. You know, one of them went to the University of Denver, one went to the University of Colorado. And we were friendly, but I had so much going on in my house and my sisters and the company and that I didn't really, I mean, I had my two friends and we got together once in a while, but socializing wasn't really that important because I was making up for the years I missed at home and family and school and work. I had a uh, uh, kind of TA job in the English department, so I worked part-time and I went to school. Did you have like relationships have with people at school, like at university? Like what was the extent of your like friendliness? I actually developed two friends that were two non-Jewish girls that I was pretty friendly with. And as a matter of fact, one of them, they're very nice girls, very, you know, very conservative, very good values, very nice. One of them got married in my senior year. She wanted me to be one of the bridesmaids. Thank God she got married on Shabbos. So I had a very easy out. There's no <laughs> way I could. I didn't have to say I can't come to your church or anything, but I, I couldn't come on Saturday, obviously. But so I did have two friends that I made that were non-Jewish girls in college, but we only hung out in school. Like, we took classes together and honors programs together. We didn't really ever hang out after school. Did you, like, make a darn for yourself with the guys? Like, did you talk to the guys in your class? It was just, like, a non-issue? Okay. It was pretty much a non-issue for me. I'm saying, Ma, I mean, you're a very attractive woman now, and I've certainly seen pictures of you back then. You're very beautiful. You never got, like, hit on by guys in high school, in college? You know, there was a very clear line between me. Like, everybody knew. Like, I was very involved in the English department because I, I majored in English, and I was worked in the, in the department. There was a very clear, everybody knew. My two sisters had gone before me. We dressed basically. We were the Orthodox girls. People were very respectful of it. It was like, I really never had that issue because it was clearly me and them. It was not, mm. and everybody knew it. I think that's one thing that's really stayed the same. Do like, you? What um, do you mean? Meaning I've had experiences, let's say one summer when I went to Yale. Mm-hmm. So you, I don't, and when I, when I met my husband and I was telling him this, he was like, your parents let you do what? <laughs> <laughs> but I went for a summer after I came back from seminary, not that summer, but the following summer. Right. And I rent, I rent, we rented an apartment. It was like a studio apartment from some yeshiva guy who was living in Yale, attending mm-hmm. Yale University. And I lived there by myself for a month or six weeks. Right. And I was working in the child study center doing like a internship. And when I showed up there the first day, it was like, okay, great. Here's you and this one other intern who happens to be like a guy, Jewish man, actually, from like florida 26 year old and i was like so you two are gonna be working closely together like the whole summer like all the projects you're basically gonna be doing together because you're the two interns so i remember i called tati and i was like what in the world do i do right so he gave me like some ideas of of certain gadarm and like my general approach was i was just like i'm obviously i looked at her and i was just like very clear about the things that i will and i won't do Mm -hmm. and he really respected it like he didn't try to push boundaries he didn't Right. You know, like that, and everybody else around me also, like it was just very clear. So I feel like that's that that kind of has stayed the same. Mm-hmm. But it's very interesting, also. Like I always think about with parenting, what about parenting is really true philosophy, or what is just a personality that you just sort of parent your personality. And I think something that I picked up, mom, from like your parenting style, 
and I, I, it certainly sounds like your parents were like this. Like we weren't very censored. We didn't have a whole lot of rules. You know, it was kind of like this is how we live our lives and trusting our children to like, you know, I, I, I don't even know. It's not even rules. That's not the word I'm looking for, y'all. Maybe you can think about it. Like, in other words, like. I, I've been thinking about this a lot, actually, because I feel like now there's so much, like, the, it's so much more, it feels to me like the influence is so much greater and so much more, like, in every everywhere you turn that, like, I have to be more, like, strict with my children about what they see, what they don't see than I remember being raised. But, I, like, I've been thinking about this. Like, is right. that just my like own anxiety like overreacting or am I but when I was thinking about it more I feel like the belief that your kids will turn out okay Mm -hmm. because you believe in them and you believe that the person that they're going to become is it's it's going to be somebody that you're proud of Mm -hmm. like that belief in your children they feel that and then you don't need to be as like you know the helicopter be be as much of a policeman mom what do you think about that um I definitely think that believing in your children is, you know, helps them believe in themselves. And I think, though, that it could, the most important influence is that influence of the home, the atmosphere that you're creating with the connection to Torah being vibrant and connecting to the values of Torah and it's how it how it totally shapes our lives. And when you connect your children to that in a real joyful, vibrant way. It, it has its own power. So there's less of a need to be as restrictive. Well, I agree with you, all the people have to be much more, I mean, with technology now, it's a whole different, a whole different world. My high school experience, so we didn't have, obviously, we didn't, we didn't have cell phones. We didn't have any of that. Um, I remember hearing about a fax machine. Somebody described to me a fax machine when I was in high school. That still blows my mind. Blows my mind. (laughs) Still to this day. (laughs) I couldn't conceive of such a thing. And I remember actually when I came back from seminary. So, okay. So I was in a class. I went to like a basic type school. There were 60 girls in my class. Almost everybody, I would say, went to Israel. At the time, there were like in a sort of an explosion of these like Besiakov seminaries. I went to Mahon Devora, Benos Chava had just opened up that year, I think, or maybe the year before. Um, and those were like the Besiakov seminaries. There was obviously, of course, BJJ, Mechala, those types of seminaries um, that had always been, or it seemed like at the time, had always been around. Like those were the, the you know, the OGs in my day was, was BJJ and Mechala. Um, and then there was they still this, are the OGs. Right. Um, But um, we didn't have technology. We didn't certainly didn't have cell phones in that way. When I came home, actually, from seminary, daddy had gotten one of these. He was always very into technology and was the first person to like, we had a Commodore 64, you know, in fourth. Okay. What is that? (laughs) Okay. Whoever's listening, who's like 48 years old, like me, will remember Commodore 64. It was like, there's a very elementary, it was so elementary. It was basically like a glorified calculator pretty much as a computer. Um, But he had a cell phone and it rang once I was in public and it rang and I was mortified. And somebody was like, Oh, 1992, carry your phone around. I heard somebody make that comment (laughs) because I was so mortified. I like ran out of the room to like answer the phone. Um, So we didn't really have, we didn't really have any of that at all. Like that, the technology in that way, but um, there was definitely a much bigger presence of influence as far as television and stuff like that like we had that and we all wanted to dress like people that we saw on the cover of 17 magazine or whatever it was that's what we used to that was very influential in those days but 
I don't know, like to go back to what we were talking about before I lived in my high school experience, I grew up in Long Island. So I stayed in Queens during the week and went home for Shabbos. And I feel like I was pretty much on my own in high school in a lot of ways. Like, again, I felt like my parents trusted me and I, I never really did anything to betray that trust to a significant degree. Like I never really, you know, crossed too many lines. No. No, not at all. But we were, I was very physically independent, meaning I took the train myself. I took the bus myself. The minute I got a car, I went, took a road trip to Scranton to go visit my grandmother by myself. And it's so crazy now to think of kids like getting in a car with no cell phone, like teenagers (laughs) and just driving on the interstate. Um, But Ma, what were you asking more, more specifically about like my, my experience in high school or post high school? Well, how different it was than, let's say, mine as far as exposure, what your friends were exposed to as far as television and the secular world and, and, and whether the schools did more um, censoring of, of academics and things like that. So I think a little the bit schools more. schools now. Yeah, definitely more, a little bit more maybe than when you were in high school, but certainly less also because I went to Shabbat High School and Dr. Blau was the principal who I actually had on this podcast. It was an amazing episode, which I would encourage everybody to go back and listen to. And she was, a, uh, is a real intellectual and she was very against uniforms. We were like the last base Yaakov school to get uniforms. So we still didn't have uniforms and she really wanted us to think. And she really wanted us to, let's say with the uniforms, let's say she wanted us to understand why we were dressing sinistically and not have it be imposed on us in the form of a uniform so that we would understand like why we were supposed to dress the way we were supposed to dress. So because of that, And it was also like Queens. It was a community school. I think something that's changed actually as the community has gone bigger, mom, I remember you said once that an interesting thing that about you growing up was that you were the only, um, the only one of your friends who had grandparents that were alive because everybody else's grandparents were killed. And so obviously as the community gets bigger, things change a lot. And still when I was a kid, the community was small enough that everybody kind of, went to the same schools and the same camps. There were three or four girls camps that people went to. And so I think that what's happened now, and maybe Al, you can speak to this a little bit, is as the firm world has gotten so much bigger, we've been able to differentiate ourselves into smaller and smaller um, social groups. So it's not just like you're with from girls. You're with from yeshivish girls of a very specific type. And like you go to a seminary with a very specific type of girl that's just like you. Whereas in my day, certainly in high school, it was like really a mix. So you had girls who like, you know, had TVs in their bedroom, let's say. And you also had girls whose parents wouldn't even have a TV in the house. And we were all in, you know, high school together in sort of the Space Yaakov school in a big, diverse community. And I think now what people are really trying to do is to make sure that they um, curate their children's environment so that they're never around influences. And maybe they have to do because, like, as we said before, the influences are so much more um, nefarious. But it's so curated that you have to be in the exact type of yeshiva school or Hasidic school or whatever it is that's just like the way that you want to raise your kids. I don't know, Yael, what do you think about that? Right. It definitely wasn't my high school experience because, like we said, I was in Vancouver and right. I graduated one of three people. Um, so that wasn't how I grew up at all. Um, and even when I went to camp, like I went to Sternberg, I went to Mahon Raya and like Mahon Raya was of all the seminaries at that time. It was like the most eclectic base Yaakov seminary. Like there was you know, like a lot of seminaries, like everyone who's been there applied to like the same three seminaries, mm-hmm. you know, like if you go to that seminary and you ask everybody where they applied, it was like the same three and Mahon Raya, it was like everybody applied across the spectrum. Um, 
and then I went to Toro. Like I didn't really have that experience of like being within my own type. And it's actually something that I've like missed. I like, I feel like I've never had a group of peers that were just like me. And I like, I want that. I'm either, I feel like I'm either like the mentor or because I've been that way so much in my life. Like a lot of times that's where I've just naturally find myself. And I've had like a few friendships here and there, but I, I, I've like missed that feeling of being like around people who are so similar to me that I feel like I have this like strong group of friends who are like, have the same values, have the same mashkafos, have the same goals. I'm saying because you grew up in Vancouver where you were like the one of the only from ones in your class. And so you didn't really have that sense of like, I go to Beis Yaakov school with a bunch of... I, I remember fighting with Mrs. Abramchik, yeah. the principal. She's like, you're a Beis Yaakov girl. And I'm like, no, I'm not. <laughs> like, I'm just myself. And I'm a from Jew because I want to be, but like, I don't belong to any group. And until like 12th grade, we were like fighting about it. And then I was like, okay, fine. I guess I, I am a Beis Yaakov girl. But like, <laughs> <laughs> like even in seminary, like I was like friends with like specific individuals, but like I never, I guess personality also, like I never had like a group. Right. And even I went to Kola. So that's like my most like-minded experience being with like a bunch of you know women who chose to marry this men from the same yeshiva who had basically the same goals but like I don't know I guess I, I don't know why I didn't find that there mm-hmm. I'm not sure I, I mean mom what was the Jewish I mean also you grew up in Denver I'm sure it was so small but you did go to Beis Yaakov of Bar Park for one year and you were in Cleveland and then after if I'm getting the time you went back to Denver after high school and then you were teaching in New York before you got married like, what was the Jewish community like as far as, like, feeling like there were different groups or denominations within the from community? You know, my, my growing up years were very much under the shadow of the Holocaust. And growing up, certainly there was, like, everybody just was happy to be alive and Jewish and to try to regrow Torah and Judaism here. We were very open to all kinds of different people, even in New York. It was much more open, inclusive, less polarized. Even the different groups, like when I went to visit my uncle in Tom Heights and, and that whole Hasidic, that kind of Hasidic family, I went to Borough Park to see my great uncle, the Baba Rebian, and Nakhtolcha, and his son. Like everybody was open and welcoming to any Jew of any stripe because we were trying to rebuild uh, a people who had been devastated. There was so little polarization. Everything was, you know, that we didn't have a lot of the the rules and regulations and 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 like when they did, you know, yeshiva dinners. It was mixed seating. When Moshe sat at the head table, when there were mixed seating at dinners, it wasn't even an issue. It's just let's bring the Jews together. Let's build. It wasn't kind of like this insularity and and a growth Hashem, that we have, where people are just like very much part of their own group did not exist. Yeah, there was Baba Verstable and there was this and that, but everybody was kind of like, let's just build Judaism Torah and accept everybody for who they are. It really didn't have any of that at all growing up. And even when I was in New York, it was a short time that I was teaching before I got married. And I was one of the few girls I know I married somebody who wanted to learn for six years and there were very few girls who wanted to marry guys who in Kolol in those days because people were still building and you know getting over the holocaust and not having and that generation was so into just establishing security and safety and financial stability that pretty much most of the girls that I grew up with other than my friends whose father's Rashim and Pels 
we're all going to marry somebody who is going to have a living and go to college. Um, going to college is something that just really was starting um, in the film world for girls and boys then. And there was a lot of talk about, you know, exposing yourself to it. But the second world was pretty safe. So pretty much all the guys who are not going to go into learning went to college. The girls started going to college later than the boys. I did, of course, because my family, we have that kind of hush, whatever hush stuff then. But um, I feel like that, that sense of mission, uh, though gives everybody a sense of identity and then it's like you don't need to ident like create your identity by all of these like nuances because all the Jews then had a very like clear mission and they had a very clear sense of identity as a result of that. And then I feel like for me I didn't yes. I, I yes, was also, so. right. Growing up in Vancouver I also feel like I had a very clear mission and I therefore had a very clear sense of identity that I didn't need to like identify with, you know, a specific group of Jews, but if you're growing up in New York or in the Five Towns or in, you know, even in Cleveland, where mm -hmm. you're just one of many, like, how do you create, like, what's your mission, what's your purpose, what's your identity? So then I feel like that's where all the, like, well, I'm me because, you know, I wear this kind of skirt as opposed to that kind of skirt. Right. Yeah. That's interesting. Well, speak, well, going back to what you said, Mom, about go marrying somebody and learning and how it wasn't so typical because people were really, um, trying to build and also I mean I guess the community was devastated by the Holocaust the American community of course also recovering from the depression and people really grew up whether they went through the war and to a lesser much lesser extent in America you know really grew up hard um, grew up difficult so it wasn't so common even when I you got married in 1973 I got married in 1994 even then um you kind of had to fight a little bit for it to marry somebody who's learning. Obviously, mom, you grew up, your father was a rabbi and you knew right away that you want, you knew always that you wanted to marry somebody who was going to be living a life devoted to Torah. And I grew up with that and I had that from my childhood and I knew that. Um, it certainly wasn't a given. It certainly some, wasn't something that people necessarily valued. I remember like even older people once, um, I went to go pay a shiva call and I was a young Kola wife at the time, and one of my grandmother's friends was there, and she said, oh, you got married, and what does your husband do? And I said, he's learning. And she says, so you work all day, and he's just sitting on his, you know, backside basically all day. Like, that was her that was her attitude about, like, what being a Kola was like. And certainly even when you went to seminary in Israel, the, you know, the the mechancham there in Israel had to, like, kind of inspire girls to marry guys who were learning because they didn't grow up with that hashkafically. And I feel like that's changed a lot, where, like, marrying somebody who's sitting and learning or that value of learning within the Torah community isn't something that you really have to defend anymore. Yeah. When you graduated... Was it a thing? Did everybody go to seminary mostly? Like, was yeah, that? everybody went to Israel, for sure. I mean, my own sister didn't, but I was, like, floored that right. there was a different option. Because right. in my mind, like, you go to Israel. That is just what you do. doesn't mm -hmm. matter. Like, you could go wherever you want, but, like, you go to Israel. Mm -hmm. um, and then after that, I would say there was a lot of pressure to have your husband learn. Like, you had to defend yourself if you weren't going to do that. Like at least for a year, right? Like it was, a, it's like a strange thing, at least in the circles that I was coming from. If your husband wasn't learning, 
at least for a little bit. Wow. And definitely even for like my much more modern friends, like Kovei Itim was like up there in the top three. What were you going to say, Bobby? I'm sorry. What about you, Yochaza? When you graduated, how many girls went to seminary? How many girls wanted boys in learning? Right. So, yeah. So basically, I would say most of the girls, I would say 80% of the girls in my class went to Israel. Um, Half and half, maybe, married guys who were learning like straight off the bat. And like... You really had to defend it if you were going to really be in learning for more than a year or two. Like that wasn't as much of a given. And there certainly wasn't any expectation of support. Like if for some reason a boy married a girl with wealthy parents who were oddly enough willing to support, then that was like hitting the jackpot. That was not something that was at all like the standard that people did. I mean, it certainly even in my day, the yeshiva community was not very wealthy. It seemed like there was a lot more money in the modern community that certainly didn't support learning as much. Um, and it wasn't very cool at all to learn. I and, remember Bubby telling me like when, what her Chavetz Chaim paycheck was relative to her rent. And it was like one week paycheck basically paid for like three weeks of rent. And it hasn't increased that much since then. <laughs> <laughs> so like it was also like a much more sustainable lifestyle. The woman all like worked part-time if at all and they were able to live on their colo check which now it's like it doesn't well, not quite not quite we weren't able to live on our colo check but it was much more sustainable you were able to live on your colo check and a part-time job very very few women even though i went to college and i had a degree and i taught english in prospect park high school half a day that was pretty typical very few women worked full-time then Right. Most was, women were working part time in Colwell. Their husbands check and were able. Rent was one hundred seventy five dollars a month. Health insurance <laughs> was three hundred dollars a year. Gas was twenty nine cents a gallon. And I mean, even though salaries are much much lower, I mean both, you know. But still, you were able to live, you know, not at all, um, you know, modestly but comfortably on a combination of Colwell and. Where you earn part time, you know, most people got a little help from their parents, even though they were wealthy, like you know, like food, or they would, you know, help pay for kids' clothes or things like that. But no major support from parents. Right. I think in my day, you had some people getting supported by parents, but it certainly wasn't a given or something that people expected or even looked for when it came to shaduchim. Like if somebody wanted to learn, they had to figure it out a little bit. Um, but I, mom, I guess a question for you, and maybe for Yael also. Obviously, you know that, like, your salary is not, your coal check is not covering rent. Like, that's a joke. The coal, I mean, in our yeshiva, certainly the coal check hasn't really been raised so much since the 1970s. They actually did raise it recently. Oh, really? Yeah, but, like, last year. <laughs> how like, much How much of rent does it cover? How much of rent does it cover? Um, maybe 50%? Half of your rent check for... Like, for the month. I mean, right. the, the coal check for the month that you get altogether. Right. So, that's obviously not sustainable model no but i'm saying even that mom what do you think about just i guess the general standard of living did it did that have to do with how like possible it was yeah we definitely live much simpler lives food was simpler clothing was simpler we no expensive cuts of meat no fancy wine it wasn't even in the picture for anybody to have things like that even wealthier people didn't have things like that so you live pretty modestly, and you, you know, just things were much, much 
less extravagant, much simpler, much less materialistic around across the board, all all income levels. Well, if I had to ask you, Ma, throwback, let's let's just do a three generational kind of uh, survey. When you were a young couple and you had a company for Shabbos and your cola and your in your apartment in Far Sales, what would be on your Friday night menu? Everybody almost had the exact same menu. You had some form of capilta fish, usually just plain boiled. It was before the days of having even fasted capilta fish, although like about, I would say halfway through my cola, we started making um, capilta fish with tomato sauce baked. That was a big thing. <laughs> Everybody had chicken soup. I was like from the biscay ones, I had alternated with vegetable soup. And you had a ch- chicken and a meat usually and a kugel and a vegetable and a dessert. That's it. No meat pizzas, no egg rolls, no <laughs> meat boards. I mean, it just didn't exist. It's, and everybody has the same thing. Right. I feel like even for me, the last five years, my answer to that question changed. What I know if that was just because I got married and it was just like me and my husband and it was like simpler. I feel like what I consider to be normal now for a Shabbos meal is different than what I consider to be normal five years ago. Like, I feel like this increase in like tablescaping and the menus and all those things like have changed recently. Do you think that's because of Instagram? Probably in part, Instagram, social media. I also think the magazines right. and things like that make it more normal. Like I, I love Family First. I read it every week. But when I close the magazine at the end of reading it, I'm like, man, I am deficient in so many areas. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know? Right. You see the tablescaping and the the recipes. And-, right. and some people, it doesn't bother them. But I feel like it does subliminally set a standard. So like if you find out for Shabbos, like my Shabbos menu is honestly pretty similar. Mm-hmm. And that, like for a typical Shabbos, what depending on the company, if there's like a Shiva guys coming, then I'll try to like throw more meat in there or something right. like that. But if I'm having a couple over, it's like, that's pretty much what it is. Maybe one extra side right, or something like that. But for Yantif or if I want to go all out, like there's a whole world to explore. Right. That I feel like a little pressure to like. Right. So when we were in Kola, I feel like also my husband, Tati, whatever, grew up in a very traditional um you know with a very traditional Shabbos fair where it was the same thing every week um and mom actually you know that was how you cooked when you were in Kolo but as we got older you know we had a broccoli kugel here and there I remember Chinese we, for right, Friday night we, too. <laughs> we did a few like interesting things so I would like sort of again like throw in a few things but it wasn't like anything super crazy like we still had gefilte fish when I was younger I haven't made gefilte fish I don't even know. Like, it isn't even a thing that I, I would serve anymore. But when I was first married, it was certainly like a filter fish, chicken soup, chicken, meat, a kugel. That's what I remember eating on Shabbos right. growing up. Like, it was the same roast potatoes. Right. It was the same green beans. Green beans. Same chicken. Rosemary so chicken. maybe it's just that I'm a boring cook, and right. I'm not very representative of how things have changed so much. No, I'm saying now your food's not like what I ate in high school. Right. I Meaning, like, growing up, it was a pretty standard menu. But my husband commented in a very positive right. way obviously that like it was you know it's like the same menu right. like it's the same things on the menu right right so again it could also just be because like i don't love cooking so much so but i'm saying but now for yuntif that's or for shabbos now it's not the same like it was right well for yuntif I mi- right for yuntif i mix it up more but even if we were to come for a shabbos i feel like it's not that's not the mindset anymore that like you right. make the same things so like, right. i feel like you're looking for new recipes yes you're making your own yogurt you're like making sourdough like it's just different it's just different and i think that is sort of reflective sort of like what you said also this explosion like when i was younger 
like a Jewish cookbook was basically like Kugel's. Like Luxion Kugel, there was a Luxion Kugel recipe, there was a potato Kugel recipe. And then I think things changed when the kosher palette came out. And all of a sudden there was this. Yeah, mom. That was the beginning of it, the kosher palette with cookbooks and and adding different things, but nothing like it is now where people are making sushi salads and meat boards and the amount of consumerism is and and it's different how many side dishes you have to have and how many meats you have to have. And it's just, I mean, I think we cook a little more simply, but I know it's like, it's a whole different level, even regular Shabbatim. So I guess I'll ask both of you this question, meaning I see both sides where I see that this is like excessive and it just creates a lot of pressure, like Yael said, and it could be consumerist or, or whatever it is. But you could also kind of flip it around and say, like, isn't this beautiful that what we spend our energy and effort and money on is our Shabbos tables and making Yontif so special and, and using these foods in a way that's really uh, uplifting. What do you think? Yeah, I'll, well, ideally, I'll that, would be wonderful. that was the motivation that, unfortunately, I think just because of Instagram, because of social media, because of the magazines, there are a lot of women, and I hear it from clients, who feel a tremendous pressure. They feel a tremendous amount of, like being judged or being viewed as having, they get very stressed when they have company for Shabbos because they have to put on this huge display. There's a lot of pressure out there in the world that I'm exposed to now in the five towns about eating and, and presentation and how you plate things and how you serve things and, and tablescapes. And, it's, it's, you know, like, yes, we do believe that Hashem gave us Gashmas and we use it to elevate it when it comes to to be that there's so much social pressure and stress and your ego's on the line and you feel you're being judged by or you're judging yourself by it, then it's unhealthy. It's just right. not. I also feel like because we do live in such a materially blessed generation, it would be really like inconsistent if we chose to spend our money and effort on things not related to Ruchnias and we didn't spend it on the Ruchnias things. Like, meaning and to make the your whole, Shabbos table beautiful. Right, meaning you're also buying nice clothing and you're also going on vacations or you're also doing all these things you can't like then be like oh but for the sake of keeping my gosh level you know like more appropriate i'm gonna like not spend it on my shabbos table i mean you could talk about the whole lifestyle but like once you're living that kind of lifestyle you can't like not spend it on shabbos it could be done yes yes we live in a world where we're spending on everything so of course our 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 the way we you know have any mitzvahs that we do and the Hebrew mitzvah that we want to have and more expensive esrogim and, and more beautiful homes and nicer whatever we have on our Shabbos table and better food. But there still should be some sort of, I think, boundary to it. Just seems like it's out of proportion. Yes, you want to enhance and we should have good food and good wine and, and tasty food. But there has to be limit no matter how much money you have, no matter how much we are involved in, in, in our a more extravagant lifestyle or a less simple lifestyle. Right. Well, um, the wine has definitely changed. We had cream pecan cord always growing up for Kiddush. Um, and actually, uh, I'll I'll quote my, uh, my father, um, Zatzal, who I remember multiple times said that he saw somewhere in some safer. I don't know if you'll remember where he saw this mom that he read once that in the time of Mashiach, there will be many kosher wines on the market and they will all be very expensive. (laughs) So Gemara, yes, so so, and he used, to say, he used to wonder when he read it when when we were in Kolo, what does that mean? Usually, if you have more something, prices go down. So he remembers the time wondering how will that be, and then he always would say, "Well, now I see how it is. Right. There's so much wine, and it's so expensive. And it's so expensive. So on it's that so positive note, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, 
so there's a lot of things that I would still want to talk about. Um, but for the sake of this podcast, um, not being, um, not being two hours long. And also as we're recording this, it's actually Erev Yantif. So I came straight from the kitchen. Not to, to put pressure on all the other <laughs> women out there. Right. <laughs> Erev Yantifs don't allow them to sit for an hour and a half right. in the studio. We, we're sitting, we're going to go right back into the kitchen to make all the various foods, which will be hopefully delicious, but not too tablescaped. Um, so, you know, we've been talking a lot and, and certainly things have changed in a lot of different ways, but maybe mom, I'll ask you first and I'll do me and then yeah, I'll could end it off. How do you think things have not changed with regards specifically to Jewish women? Like what has stayed the same? And you could even maybe think back to your grandparents, to you, to us, to me, Yael, her daughter. I think the thing that has stayed the most the same to me is how women prioritize raising children as their main focus in life, no matter how much invested, how hard they have invested in their careers, how involved they are and all this other stuff we're talking about, I still find that almost all the women I meet, if you ask them what's the most important thing or responsibility or role that they have, it's in raising healthy children yeah. and investing in how to raise mm-hmm. their children. Yeah, I think that's true. And I, I would say that's something that I certainly saw from my grandmothers, um, obviously you, Mom, um, is that as women tend to get older they become a little bit more clear about the role of tefillah for Jewish women. And you see this as women get older that they, you know, pick up, certainly true for me, pick up the tehillah more, like Jewish women daven for their kids. Um, And if you're younger now and you see all these older women davening, you'll get there. Don't worry. That's such a pressure because I'm like, is that going to be me? I really hope so. (laughs) But that's what I'm saying. I I don't see that that's changed. Like I I remember seeing certainly my grandmother with a Tehillim and sitting and davening and and obviously Tati's grandmother sitting with her Tehillim and also thinking like, wow, like I don't daven so well. But then as you get older, I think there is that thing that Jewish women daven for their kids and that has not changed in any way. And also the chesed, I would say, that Jewish women do in their, their family and their community is, that's a, an enduring trait. Uh, what, Yael, what do you think? I think also that Jewish women always felt like they were juggling a tremendous amount. Mm-hmm. There's just like a lot that goes on in order to like raise a family and provide for them in whatever way you needed to, that we're just, I feel like we always feel like we're at our max and we're doing like the most we can. I actually remember you telling me this when I was in high school and you were working full time, raising all of us, six of us, mm-hmm. running the mikvah and going for your master's. And you were telling me you would speak to these like non-Jewish women who were like so overwhelmed because they were taking two courses this year and like, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, Jewish women are always doing a lot. So right. like whatever a lot looked like at different times, like we're, I feel like we're always at our max and trying to figure out how to manage. Yeah. I don't know if that's a super positive. I mean, it is a positive thing, obviously, because there's a tremendous amount that we accomplish. But like I feel like that's in the nature of the Jewish woman to just do and do and do and do and do. Right. And mom, you would probably say that there's a way that you need to do that in a healthy way so that you don't feel overwhelmed. Yeah. yeah. A- and feeling overwhelmed. Right. And that's the other side. No, but I agree with Yael that I think Jewish women always, if we look historically back into the Torah, the ones that really were kept, you know, kept the, the torch going on many levels and we're still doing it. And women are more pressured now than ever before because most women have to work full time in order to help support mm-hmm. their families. And they have to, and they want to raise their children and they're keeping homes and they have this tremendous pressure to 
to cook and, and all these other things. So I think women all do feel a tremendous pressure, but women rise to the occasion. It's amazing to me the amount of chesed that women do in our Jewish communities, despite all of this responsibility, it absolutely blows me away. Wow. Okay, well, that is a great note to end it on, actually, and I hope maybe we'll pick this up for a part two, um, because there's definitely a lot more, I think, that we can, a lot of different things that I had wanted to talk about. I want to talk about dating, maybe, shadokhim, different things, how things have changed, how things have stayed the same, but this was an amazing podcast. Mom, thank you so much for um, joining us via Zoom. Yeah, I'm so glad that you were here. This was super fun. So much fun. Yeah, and um, okay, everybody to my audience, thank you all so much for listening. You can all reach me at a deeper conversation one two zero at gmail.com. Let me know what you thought of this. If you have more questions that you would like me to ask both my mother and my daughter, we could do a round two of this. And um, I'll meet you back here at the next podcast. Thank you. Hey, so I hope you all enjoyed that episode. Um, it was so much fun to have. And as my daughter and I actually were leaving the studio, we were, of course, reflecting on what we said, what we wish we would have said, what we should have said. And one of the things that we were wondering about together was whether or not we were at as positive as we could have been. We felt like we got a lot um, caught up in sort of, you know, kids these days kind of conversation. And we did mention something in passing that I wanted to reflect on a little bit. And I'd love to explore this more with my mother and my daughter in a later podcast. But um, yeah, I had mentioned that it was just a given that her friends were going to go and start their marriage sitting and learning. Whereas in my day, it was still kind of a fight and it was almost unheard of in my mother's day for that to happen. And it just sort of made me think about how far the Jewish world has come just with regards to sort of picking ourselves up from the ashes of the Holocaust and bringing Torah back to the primacy in the Jewish home where it belongs. And it's such a positive thing to see as the generation goes on, the hashivas for Torah, the value of Torah, the value of Torah learning that it has. And you see that it's growing and it's just such a mainstream thing now that couples just start off their marriage in a certain way and it's such a, a positive thing. And so I wanted to reflect back on that and there were so many things I wanted to talk about. I want to talk about SNEAS and how that's changed and dating. And anyways, like I mentioned at the end of the podcast, if you have any suggestions or questions that you'd like to ask me, my mom, my daughter, and you'd like to see a part two of this episode, please be in touch with me at a deeper conversation, 120 at gmail.com. Consider sponsoring an episode or becoming a monthly donator at maverickpodcasting.com. Go to my page, click on, click on the link, click on the heart symbol and scroll down to my name. Um, anyways, that is it for this episode of A Deeper Conversation, and I will meet you all back here in the next episode.